takes us to Richardson, Texas, where after a year of caring for their illness-riddled adopted young daughter, her parents finally have had enough. This is episode 68 of Texas 1031. Hey everyone, this is Hannah. This is Texas 1031, and this is a Texas true crime podcast. I have another listener-suggested case today, and that is the murder of Sharon Matthews. This case was requested by Christopher, so thank you so much for the suggestion. This one is a major bummer. It is a child murder, so do with that what you will. So picture it, Richardson, Texas, 2017. This case is just as upsetting as any case that involves a young child, but I think this one is a bit more interesting because of who the perpetrator was. I actually wanted to look this up and see if it was true or not, or if I was just making up statistics in my head, but according to state submissions to the National Child Abuse and Neglect Data System released just last month in February... Children are more likely to be killed, firstly, by their mother, which I think we all can agree is the most common, secondly, by both parents collectively, and thirdly, by simply just their father. And in the case of three-year-old Sharon, her father, 39-year-old Wesley Matthews, was to blame for her senseless death. Uh, Matthews with one T, by the way, kills me. So let's rewind to 2014 briefly and discuss how Sharon came into the care of Wesley Matthews. So on July 14th of that year, Sharon was born in Gaya Bihar, India. For reasons unknown, Sharon was placed in a local orphanage after her birth. And just two years later, in July of 2016, Sharon was adopted by an Indian American couple in the United States, Wesley and Cindy Matthews. At the time, the couple lived in Richardson, Texas, with their four-year-old biological daughter. A little over one year later, on Saturday, October 7th, 2017, Sharon Matthews would be reported missing to the Richardson Police Department. Around 8 a.m. that Saturday, Wesley calls RPD dispatch to request assistance in finding Sharon, who, at that point, had been missing for only a few hours. Wesley claimed to have last seen his daughter around 3 a.m., so about five hours have passed since Sharon was supposedly last seen to then being reported missing. Officer Jeremy Savage takes the call and heads over to the Matthews home to speak with Wesley and take the report on Sharon. Officer Savage goes outside with Wesley to get a better idea of where he last saw Sharon and to just get more information. Wesley takes Officer Savage out to his yard and down his driveway, walking toward a small street. He points ahead to a cluster of trees, indicating that that was where he last saw Sharon around three in the morning. Um, yeah, immediately, no, I'm sorry. There, there are plenty of stories we have read about or listened to podcasts about regarding unbelievable stories that parents give about their child going missing or being found dead, um, one specifically that comes to mind is a small like one season podcast called Septic. I think I've actually mentioned it before in another episode. It's really good. Um, I listened to that years ago and you're sitting there listening like no fucking way. This is too bizarre and rare and you just don't believe the parents version of events. And that's kind of the sentiment I have towards Wesley's initial story. I was just like, yeah, 
sure. No, you're a liar. But anyway, other officers arrive at the home and begin to take part in the report and search for Sharon, despite their incredulity. Wesley openly admits to the officers that around 3 a.m., he took Sharon outside as punishment for not drinking her milk. He told her to stand near the trees that he had pointed to a moment earlier until she finished drinking what was in her cup. According to Wesley, when he went back outside around 3.15 a.m. to check on the three-year-old, she had vanished. He told the officers at his home that the delay in contacting them was due to the fact that he had been walking around for a while searching for Sharon, and his wife was still asleep, so he didn't want to wake her. Uh-huh. So the police on scene completed a walkthrough of the Matthews home to ensure that Sharon wasn't simply, you know, hiding or stuck somewhere in the house. Officer Savage noted that he thought it was strange that during the walkthrough of the home, Wesley appeared to be just casually following him through the house rather than leading him from room to room with, you know, any sort of sense of urgency. He was just kind of puttering along, just going with the flow. A search done later in the home would show that laundry had recently been done and clothes were actually still in the washer and dryer. Officer Savage later stated that he thought it was odd since, you know, if your child is missing, why would you feel the need to start a load of laundry? And I mean, people definitely do weird shit in times of stress or panic, but I don't know if I've ever heard about someone doing laundry. Maybe this is a first, but interesting. With the house combed through, Sydney Matthews, Wesley's wife, provided officers with a photo of Sharon to assist in the neighborhood search for her daughter. Additionally, an Amber Alert was issued for Sharon, but unfortunately, law enforcement wouldn't have to look much further. Later that day on October 7th, Wesley is asked to come to the police station for a formal interview. Detective Victor Diaz Mirandized Wesley, and Wesley waived his rights. He was cooperative, wanting to speak with law enforcement. According to Detective Diaz, Wesley told him during his interview that the night prior, on Friday, October 6th, around 10 p.m., the family was headed to bed. Cinny, Wesley, Sharon, and their biological daughter all slept in the primary bedroom of the home. Before getting into bed, Wesley gave Sharon a cup of milk to drink. This was evidently routine for Sharon to have due to some medical issues she had, one of which was difficulty eating and weight gain. The milk was more or less part of a nutritional guideline that Sharon's doctor had recommended. Detective Diaz noted that Wesley came across a bit annoyed with the fact that he was given an unhealthy child and that he seemed almost resentful against Sharon for her health problems. With this slight glimpse into deeper parts of the relationship between Wesley and Sharon, Detective Diaz takes this moment to lay on the pressure. He asks Wesley, did something happen at home? You know, maybe an accident? Because how come the scent dogs can't pick up anything out by the trees that you said she was last seen by? He asked Wesley if he took her somewhere or perhaps he did something to her in the house. Did she go underwater in the bathtub accidentally? Did any sort of accident occur? He's really trying to give Wesley a moment to admit and come clean with whatever happened. But Wesley denies all of the questions and inferences. Detective Diaz starts to lose his patience a bit and straight up tells Wesley, look, 
There is no evidence that anything occurred outside or by a tree. You know, something obviously happened in the house. So let's get to what really happened, okay? Because we have been talking for the last couple hours. Your house and the tree line have all been getting processed, and there is no sign of your daughter. So you better start getting to the truth because nothing is being found that supports your version of events. So after about four hours of interrogation and with no evidence of a crime or Sharon's body, Wesley Matthews was actually arrested on charges of abandoning or endangering a child simply based on what Wesley had told them about how he had left Sharon outside in the middle of the night by herself, which I think is a very smart move on law enforcement's part. Over the next two weeks, the search for Sharon deepened both by law enforcement and in the media. But on October 22nd, the hunt for little Sharon would come to a grim end. A search and rescue dog named Stella would indicate at a culvert about a half a mile from the Matthews home. Stella was a cadaver dog trained to alert at the scent of decomposition. Sharon had finally been found. The remains of Sharon Matthews were so badly decomposed the medical examiner was unable to perform an internal autopsy. Because of this, her true cause of death was never completely determined. However, the medical examiner did list Sharon's manner of death as homicide and cause of death as homicidal violence. She would later tell a jury that maggots had eaten Sharon's internal organs away, which caused her to have exceptional difficulty during the autopsy. With Sharon's body now located, police brought Wesley back to the station for a second interview. Once again, Wesley waived his rights and willingly spoke with investigators. However, this time, Wesley had an attorney present, as well as a whole new story about what happened to Sharon. Wesley's new version of events were night and day compared to his original missing child report. This time, Wesley tells investigators that Saturday night, he and Sharon were in the garage. Sharon was struggling to finish her milk, and she began to choke. He claims she was coughing and choking so much that her eyes actually began to roll to the back of her head, and she lost her pulse. Wesley said that her hands and feet began to go cold as well, so he was rubbing her back, trying to help warm her up. But by that point, he realized she had died. He finished the interview by admitting that he panicked and didn't know what to do, so he went to the culvert and pushed Sharon in as far as she could go. The interview ended with Wesley's charges being upgraded to injury to a child by omission, and a capital murder charge would follow soon after. Let's not forget about Cindy Matthews, Sharon's adoptive mother. She was actually later charged with child endangerment a few weeks later, but those charges would be dropped later on. As the investigation continued, police found information showing that the night before Sharon's murder, the Matthews family actually went out to dinner, purposefully leaving Sharon at home alone by herself, a three-year-old child, remember. Receipts also show that the family ordered food for themselves, including the couple's four-year-old daughter, but nothing was bought for Sharon. So even if you can wrap your head around the fact that they left her at home alone. They didn't even have the decency to bring her some fucking food. Like, it's so bad all the way around. You can't ignore it. it. It's it's bad. And it's right the night before she died. Like, oh my God. It's like these people, 
Sydney and Wesley, they, they have the capacity for parenting and caring for a child because they did it once with their biological daughter, unless there's history there that we are not aware of. But at the slightest inconvenience or imperfection, they want Sharon dead or gone or out of the picture or left at home, whatever you want to, however you want to phrase it. It's very weird. I don't know what they thought was correct about that situation, leaving her at home. In June of 2019, the capital murder trial for Sharon's death was set to begin. However, just before the court proceedings commenced, Wesley Matthews decided to plead guilty to a lesser charge, injury to a child by omission. Essentially, Wesley Matthews decided to accept life in prison rather than a possible death sentence, despite claiming Sharon's death was all just a terrible accident. Representing the state of Texas was prosecutor Jason Fine. In his opening statements, he told the jury what Wesley's original story was. He had placed Sharon outside, then she went missing, all of that. Prosecutor Fine said it was all a lie, a lie that cost everyone 15 long days searching for no reason. Fine also told the jury that Sharon's cause of death couldn't be determined due to her body's decomposed state and emphasized how Wesley had a whole new story after being arrested and retaining an attorney, which kind of can be expected, I guess. Prosecutor Fine explained Wesley's new story in brief as follows. While drinking her milk at 3 a.m., because, you know, that's what the majority of three-year-olds are doing at 3 a.m., Sharon chokes while sipping her milk, so Wesley decides to not call for help or try and revive her. Rather, Wesley places Sharon in a bag. Um, what? There's a whole back and forth in the court proceedings. Wesley adamantly denies it was a trash bag. He just, he doesn't say what he it was, but like, I'll show you, I'll post a picture of the blue bag in question on Instagram if you want to see it. I feel like it looks like a fucking trash bag, but whatever. So, okay, uh, rather, Wesley places Sharon in a bag and tosses her in the back of his SUV with some other junk and drives around town looking for a place to dump this little girl's body. After locating this culvert, he takes Sharon feet first into the hole and lays her on her back and removes the plastic bag, leaving her to rot for 15 days. Prosecutor Fine urged the jury to be mindful of what they will be hearing and seeing and that their sole job as a jury is to decide the severity of punishment, not guilt or innocence, since Wesley had already done that part for them by pleading guilty. They had a sliding scale with probation on one end and life in prison on the other. In the defense's opening statement, Wesley's defense attorney, Rafael de la Garzas, came forward telling the jury that they will hear directly from Wesley himself. Wesley will be testifying and that they will be able to hear the other side of the story regarding the death of Sharon. I mean, we've already heard two stories, but sure, third time's the charm, right? De La Garza's attempted to provoke some empathy and compassion from the jurors, reminding them that Wesley has taken responsibility and is owning up to his poor decisions and actions and to essentially give him some points for that. Uh, I don't know. God bless defense attorneys. Such a cringy job. Remember, though, Wesley isn't pleading guilty to murder. No, no, no. He took the plea for the lesser charge of injury to a child by omission. So like his original charge, essentially. So the trial commences and the prosecution calls a few witnesses to testify. These people were primarily individuals who were working with Sharon in therapy in the time leading up to her death. 
So a speech language therapist at Children's Health named Nikki Darafone was the first witness called by the state. Sharon had initially began therapy with Nikki in January of 2017 for speech and language therapy. And later on, um, Wesley and Cindy requested therapy for feeding and swallowing. The Matthews had told Nikki that Sharon seemed to be struggling with having more variety in her vocabulary, especially with nouns and verbs. I mean, she's two and a half. She's not fucking 13. You want her to diagram a fucking sentence, Wesley? Like, she doesn't even know the language. Like, she's still learning English, but sure. Great. Regardless, Nikki testified that Sharon excelled. And after six months, she had met all of her goals and was discharged from that portion of her therapy. Cinny, Sharon's mother, who was a registered nurse, by the way, still had issues with Sharon's food intake and feeding struggles. By issues, I'm not sure if she meant she had primarily problems with getting Sharon to eat or she still had concerns with how much she was eating. You know what I mean? There's context, I guess, in that word. Nikki testified that she never once saw Sharon choke while she was eating during therapy. She said if she didn't like something, Sharon would sometimes gag, but never choke. Nikki told the jury that during Sharon's evaluation, they did a thorough exam of her mouth, including her teeth and tongue, ensuring that her chewing and swallowing techniques were all completely normal and average for a girl her age. So more or less, Nikki was paramount in proving that Sharon had normal eating and ingestion habits. She was not a habitual choker. Nikki also testified that she would have never recommended force feeding a child at 3 a.m. Next would be Amber Neville. She was also called to the stand as a witness. She was working with Sharon on her motor skills. Amber testified that during the time she worked with Sharon, she had seen significant improvement. And due to the homework she would send home with Sharon, Amber knew her parents were actually working with her at home and continuing with the recommended exercises and treatment. Lindsay Walker was another physical therapist that worked with Sharon before her death. Lindsay noted that Sharon hadn't been attending as many sessions as she would have preferred for a consistent and beneficial plan of treatment. And she also noted that she didn't see Wesley participate in any of the therapy sessions. She only saw him sitting in the waiting room for Sharon to get done. By the time Sharon had completed her treatment with Lindsay in May of 2017, she was able to jump and climb freely, her only struggle being running, but she was close to meeting that goal, excelling at a fast walk. So we're getting both kind of sides of Sharon's treatment. A lot of her a lot of the witnesses are saying she did great. She improved. She is, you know, maturing and growing at a normal rate and she's not really struggling. They're also saying, you know, she's getting the practice and treatment at home. Her parents are being supportive and assisting, but they're also saying uh, they didn't really give a fuck. They didn't come to any of the treatments in person. They just kind of waited for her. So you're getting a little reasonable doubt on both ends, I think. Detective Diaz was also called to the stand to discuss some specifics surrounding the investigation into Sharon's death. He opened his testimony, stating that when he received the call for service, he was told by his sergeant that there was a five-hour delay in Sharon being missing to now being reported to authorities, and that Wesley called the non-emergency number rather than 911. I think everyone knows the difference between the non-emergency versus 911, so we're not going to have to go through that. 
Detective Diaz explained that he later listened to Wesley's call to report Sharon missing, and it sounded like he was reporting an item as missing, not his three-year-old daughter. He said the call just had so many red flags getting thrown up as Wesley kept speaking. Once he got on scene, Detective Diaz testified he had a feeling something was definitely wrong, but for the moment, he was just trying to get a better sense for what was going on. He kept a sharp eye out while searching the home and listening to Wesley. And at this point in his testimony, Diaz also tells the jury the story about the washer having been on and a small load of clothes had been in the process of being washed. Detective Diaz also describes how after the search of the home was completed, they confiscated a laptop as well as some of Sharon's clothing that were found in the trash can having been covered in vomit. They also recovered security video footage from a home across the railroad tracks nearby. So this is this is kind of crazy luck. So this house's camera was like a motion detector camera. So it would only record if movement was sensed. So this camera, which faced the Matthews residence, actually recorded all fucking night long because a spider had been spinning a web on it throughout the evening and early morning. Like, again, what luck. Crazy. So at 5.19 a.m. on October 7th, the camera captured a car backing out of the Matthews driveway. At 4.53 a.m., it was seen pulling back onto the driveway towards the home. Investigators were also able to locate additional video footage of this vehicle driving along the route that Wesley had confessed to taking when going to dispose of Sharon's body. So while Detective Diaz was still on the stand, the prosecution introduced some text messages between Cindy and Wesley. These messages were from around eight months prior to Sharon's death. And at the time of these text messages, Cindy had taken Sharon to the hospital for an infection in her shoulder. The messages to Wesley were simply just updates on how the appointment was going. And to be honest, you guys, like I know that these texts were supposed to be fortuitous and insidious in nature, but to me, they really only came across like this kid has a lot of health problems and her parents are concerned, but also annoyed at the cost and the circus all of her hospital visits have caused. And I think that is somewhat of a normal reaction from parents. You know, you have to think about the child and the finances, as well as your other child, too. So I get why these messages were brought up in trial, but I personally don't think they were a strong evidence factor in the state's case. There was nothing concrete that said, fuck this kid. I can't believe we're having to shell out all this money for her stupid shoulder. Let's kill her next week. Like, it, it never said that. It was just like, hey, the doctor said she needs to be admitted and she needs these types of medications and this is progressing and getting worse. And it was just like, sure, yeah, admit her, make sure she's okay. It actually seemed more supportive in nature than not. So anyway, Prosecutor Fine also brings up some letters Wesley wrote to Sydney during his time in jail in which he never mentions Sharon or her death or if he misses her, etc., Instead, he talks to Cindy about recipes, puzzles, poetry, and other miscellaneous stuff about his time in jail. However, those letters were cherry-picked for the trial. This wasn't the case in every letter. He actually does talk about Sharon in other letters, just to be clear. So again, is this stuff objectively wrong, like the text messages? No. Does it make him look kind of 
heartless and remorseless, I guess, if you want to think about it that way. I, I don't, I think it's pretty neutral, to be honest. But again, I mean, that's what the state's job is. So do I agree with the character assassination in the most frivolous and petty sense? No, definitely not. Do I understand why they brought this up? Yeah, they're trying to make Wesley look bad and prove their point, which they did. Detective Diaz ends his time on the stand telling the jury that in his opinion, Wesley Matthews has shown deception and a complete lack of remorse throughout the entire investigation. Other witnesses were special agent for the FBI, Thomas Tedder, Forensic Files. He testified that he was in charge of the investigation of Wesley's iPhone. He said that at 3.50 a.m. on October 7th, Wesley stopped sharing his location with Cine. Additionally, this is big, okay? Dr. Susan Dackel, she was another witness. She was one of Sharon's pediatricians. She testified that Sharon suffered from five broken bones in the eight months before her death. These included a broken elbow, tibia, femur, as well as two broken shoulder bones. Not good. A full-on CPS investigation was done, but the family was cleared of any suspicion. Um, I don't know, man. Two out of those five injuries are like really hard bones to break. Maybe not as difficult to break as a child, but still, in eight months, like, that just doesn't seem right to me. Um, you know, maybe, again, that had to do with, like, her nutritional issues. But I, I don't know. I guess she's dead now. So what are you going to do? Lastly, the prosecution called the medical examiner and pathologist for Sharon's case, Dr. Elizabeth Ventura. She told the jury it was impossible, flat out impossible, for Sharon to have choked and died from drinking milk the way Wesley had described. So rather than having experts uh, as witnesses being called to the stand like the prosecution did, the defense would call friends and family of the Matthews to testify, one of which was a female physician who was a friend from the church the Matthews attended. All she did was gush about how the family was excited to adopt Sharon and that Wesley was a great dad. The woman testified that Sharon was very shy at first and was very clingy to Cindy or Wesley, but over time, Sharon bloomed into a very active and fun-loving child. Prosecutor Fine, on cross-examination, posed a hypothetical question to the woman, stating, Let me just ask you this. Hypothetically, if somebody, let's say they didn't even kill their child, Let's say they watch their child die, okay? Watch their child die in front of them. Decided to put that child in a garbage bag, put him in the back of their truck with other trash, and take the body of their child out of that trash bag, crawl into a sewer, and leave the body in a sewer. Lie to police for a couple weeks to the point where that body decomposes so badly there aren't any organs left behind of their child. Alright, you follow me on the hypothetical so far? Yes. What do you think should happen to that person who committed that horrible crime? Um, I don't know... Exactly what happened, 
Um, but that person is not anyone that I used to know or had any acquaintance with. Um, I don't, I cannot reconcile those two people. Um, one that would have done that with one that I knew. Well, let me just ask you this. Can I just set up a hypothetical stance, mm -hmm. okay? Hypothetically, you agree with me that person should receive the maximum punishment. Don't you agree? Hypothetically. Um, I would say that whatever is according to the law. Additional witnesses, like the woman from the audio, were also called to testify about when Sharon first arrived in America after her adoption. She was very timid and shy, but it was Wesley who really helped her grow and become the sweet and outgoing girl she turned into. One man testified that everyone in the Matthews social circle was completely shocked to hear what had happened between Wesley and Sharon, mainly because there were no signs of abuse or serious trouble within the family. They knew about the feeding issues and some of Sharon's developmental problems, but nobody ever saw this coming, nor thought it was in the realm of possibility because of how much they believed Cinny and Wesley cared for Sharon. After the jury heard from Wesley's brother, they were next subjected to Wesley Matthews himself. Immediately upon taking the stand, Wesley apologized to the police officers who worked on Sharon's case, realizing how much time and effort they had put into the investigation all the while he knew what had happened and had lied and impeded the search for Sharon. Acting in the complete opposite of most defendants who usually, you know, take the stand and they boast about the crimes that they are on trial for and claiming they weren't their fault, Wesley actually addressed the jury with utter humility and remorse. You could truly hear the regret and sadness in his voice. In his recap of the night of October 6th and the early morning of October 7th, Wesley told the jury he had just taken a shower and was heading to the bedroom. He then noted that Cinny and their eldest daughter were already in bed and Sharon was in her crib. He claims that restless with his mind racing, thinking about work and his to-do list for the next day, he was also hearing Sharon tossing and turning in her crib. This, he told the jury, was very unusual as Sharon fell asleep quite quickly most nights. He looked up and made eye contact with Sharon, so he got up and took her out of her crib. The two went out into the kitchen, retrieving her a bottle of fresh milk. Wesley explained that he decided to do some stuff around the house while Sharon drank her milk, but after a few minutes, when he went to check on her, she still hadn't finished the bottle. He told Sharon she needed to finish so they both could go back to bed. She evidently nodded in agreement and understanding. However, after a little while longer, Sharon still wasn't done. According to Wesley, in an effort to get Sharon to finish her milk, he took her out to the garage to look at their new lawnmower. He told the jury Sharon had a fascination with the lawn equipment and thought it might get her to relax and drink the last of her bottle. He explained that he was emphatic about her finishing because she was so underweight and her doctors had placed a lot of pressure and responsibility upon he and Zini about getting Sharon healthy and keeping up her caloric intake. He didn't want to give CPS another reason to investigate the family. At some point while in the garage, Wesley dozed off after getting Sharon settled and comfortable. 
He said he woke up and saw Sharon still sitting there with the straw of her bottle in her mouth, but she wasn't drinking. Frustrated, he yelled at Sharon, a bit too forcefully, startling the young girl and causing her to cry and to choke. He said that he tried to calm her down and stop her coughing and choking by rubbing her back. However, this didn't work. Her coughing just got worse. He claimed this is when he called out for Cinny to come help, but she never came out to the garage. Wesley said he laid Sharon on the ground as her breathing began to get heavier. He also claimed he even shook Sharon to try and stop her choking, but then her head completely stopped moving. You understand that the information you're sharing with the ladies and gentlemen of the jury now is different. You're adding more than what you've told the police back in Richardson in late October. You understand that? Yes, sir. And you're... What you're saying is what happened? You did not go into that type of detail back on the 23rd? Yes, sir. At some point, does Sharon become lifeless? Yes, sir. I checked her pulse. Um, I checked her pulse on her left arm. I tried to listen to her pulse. I don't, uh, I don't, uh, listen, I don't hear anything. Wesley told the court that he checked for a pulse and tried CPR. He explained that he didn't want to stop CPR and go get his wife, who again, remember, was a nurse. He didn't want to waste precious moments that could keep Sharon alive. At some point, however, he realized his attempts at saving Sharon had failed. He said he sat in the garage and began to pray. He was in such a state of shock and fear, he just didn't know what to do. Wesley stated, I refused to believe that my child had gone from the world, and if I prayed hard and strong enough, Sharon might be resurrected like Lazarus. He then explained how he began devising a plan to hide Sharon's body from CPS, law enforcement, and CINE. He got a large blue plastic bag and placed her in the bag and then drove to the culvert. He said he waited at the culvert for a while, hoping a snake would show up and bite him. After the snake never arrived, Wesley went home and later called the Richardson Police Department and gave the whole out-by-the-trees story. He admitted he failed Sharon and his entire family and feels angry at himself and at God for what happened. He said if he could tell Sharon anything, he would tell her that he is so sorry and that he just wants to be with her. On cross-examination, Prosecutor Fine called out Wesley for his inconsistent story and testimony and his straight-up lies. He calls Wesley out for the vomit on Sharon's clothes that were found in the trash, as well as her broken bones that she sustained. Wesley really didn't have a good answer for those accusations. It's all pretty fucking cringy. Wesley completely bombs the cross-examination. The state's closing arguments focused on how they believed Sharon had been abused during her entire time in Texas, emphasizing again her broken bones and the CPS investigation. They wanted the jury to remember that not everyone knows what goes on behind closed doors and that Sharon's life with the Matthews was most likely miserable. The jury, in the end, recommended that Wesley be sentenced to life in prison with the possibility of parole after 30 years. 
Despite his attempts at appeals in February of 2021, the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals finalized their decision to not hear his case. Wesley Matthews is currently incarcerated in the Cofield unit in Tennessee Colony, Texas, and is eligible for parole in 2047. And that is the murder of Sharon Matthews. Let's do some questions and theories. I think that the main question, for me at least, is do we think that this was an accident or was it frustration and abuse that led to murder? I went back and forth on this the entire time I was researching this case. I think I still do, even just after reading through it again. So let's briefly take both scenarios and break them down. So my biggest question for the accident theory, okay, is the clothing covered in vomit, and maybe this was addressed in court, and maybe they were able to remove this from the equation. I I don't know. But to me, I still have questions about it. So Why didn't he just wash her soiled clothes with the other clothes he had put in the washer? I guess if she was already dead, then he is assuming she won't need him again. So just throw them out, right? But if she had just thrown up, why not just wash them? I feel like that's a waste. But maybe they were so gross, he just threw them away. I have a problem with the clothes, but that's just me. Also, in that same vein, what caused the vomit? Could they tell if it was fresh or old or was that ever explained of like a timestamp on these clothes? Was this a product or a result of the choking? Because if so, that leads me to think there is a possibility that this was an accident and she did throw up and maybe choked on her vomit. But then why didn't he use that as part of his defense? I feel like that would have been a smart ad, you know? She accidentally, you know, choked, she threw up and died. And it was all, again, a big, terrible accident. But they never, you know, put that in there. The accident theory is really hard to dismiss because of, you know, his seemingly genuine. And I mean, if you listen to more of the court stuff, I feel like it was genuine remorse in his tone and his attitude during trial. He didn't deny his involvement, which we're so used to hearing. I think that if it was an accident, he, you know, he was trying to get her weight up and she wasn't sleeping maybe. So he gave her a bottle and maybe she gagged, maybe she threw up and choked to death. Then, you know, he must have panicked and tried to cover it up and hide her body. And it just, it went south. He reacted poorly and that's unfortunate. But You know, he subjected himself to a guilty plea and taking the stand as a witness, which is a big fucking move of showing, again, remorse and taking responsibility for your actions. But also, it's kind of a good way to avoid the death penalty. So I don't know. The accident theory is still pretty big in my mind. So scenario two is more so the theory that she was abused and killed somewhat on purpose. I think there are massive moments of deception, just like Detective Diaz said, and, you know, cover up from his original Wesley's original narrative and his call to police to what he stated in his testimony in court. I think there are big holes and differences in what, like I said, what he originally said to versus what was provided in court. Did he probably have some help from his attorneys polishing up his testimony Yes, for sure. I mean, that's that's what their job is. Does it mean that everything he said was a lie? No, 
not really, but I do think we are missing some pieces of the truth and the timeline is a bit wonky. I think Sharon's medical history is sus as fuck and her broken bones are not a good sign at all. But again, like I mentioned, her broken bones, could that have been a result of her nutritional issues? Weak bones, need more milk, I don't know. Also, let's not forget that they left her at home and didn't bring her food. The fact that there was a CPS investigation opened on the family is also a bad look. Were Cindy and Wesley having fertility issues and the girl they adopted turned out to be defective and they were mad and resentful? What if when she threw up in her crib at 3 a.m. on October 7th, that was just the last straw for Wesley? Did he change Sharon's clothes, throw away the ones covered in vomit and make her a new bottle? But when she wouldn't drink it, he yelled at her and shook her and accidentally killed Sharon in a heated moment of anger and frustration. I don't know. I think the truth might lie somewhere in that version of events, to be honest. But since she was so badly decomposed, I I don't think we will ever be totally comfortable with what the truth really is in the death of Sharon Matthews. Anyways, as always, I hope you enjoyed this episode. Um, If you have questions and theories of your own, please email me or reach out to me on social media. I am still reading the thick book I mentioned in the last episode, so I will be back at some point with more Texas true crime. And if anyone is listening, happy Halloween.